How good are you at waiting? Ponder that for a second. I'll wait. It may be a little hard to answer, so I'm going to give you a scenario. Let me, let me set up a scenario for you. Let's imagine that today after worship, you decide you're going to run to the grocery store and pick up a few groceries. You get into the grocery store and you realize that was a bad idea because noontime on Sunday is the busiest time of week for a grocery store. But you fill your half a cart anyway and you head to the checkout aisles and you get into line. At that moment, who do you become? Is there a Jekyll and Hyde going on with you where you, the lovely person that you are, become something very, very different? I'll give you some categories to help you answer this question of what kind of waiter are you. First, there's the casual waiter. You're the type that doesn't really think about the fact that you're waiting. You stand there, you poke around on your phone, you're very interested in all the checkout stand items and memorabilia and stuff, so you're kind of looking through the magazines and at the, you know, at the crossword puzzle book, and you're, you're pondering how is it that the American culture can have so many different types of gum. These are the kinds of things that are going on in your mind as you stand in line. It doesn't really bother you that you are in line. You're a casual waiter. There are, I'm told, a few people in the world that are like this. And then there's the rest of us who think we're like this. And then there might be the few holy ones among you who are like this. The casual waiter, it's fine, you'll wait. But perhaps you're one of these others. Perhaps you are the frenetic waiter or the frantic waiter. You're the kind that you see this whole checkout line as a game to be figured out. You're constantly monitoring the line flow. Should I jump lines? Should I go? Well, well let's see. You're constantly working through that. You are, you're the one that eyes the cashiers as you approach the checkout line to somehow determine simply by sight how quickly they're going to get you through the line. And you find yourself saying to yourself, with no evidence at all, you find yourself saying, no, no, not her. She looks slow. If you're frantic, you have complex waiting calculus that goes on. You look at the carts in front of you. You calculate the volume of items in the cart multiplied by how many scans that would be divided by the amount of things that need to be weighed because that's going to throw you off. You're anything but chill about the whole thing. Your mind is not at rest when waiting. You're the frantic waiter. Or perhaps you are the frustrated waiter. You're the one who cannot believe they only have four checkouts open on a Sunday afternoon. Do they not know how to run this store? I can run this store. I want to be the manager right now. Are you, you're, you're frustrated, right? You're mad. You look at the next person, a total lovely stranger next to you who moves faster than you, in their line, and you begin to hate them. Why do they get in the faster line? I'm always in the slow line. Always in the slow line. You're mad at yourself. You're mad at the clerk. You're mad at Sunday afternoons. You're mad at the grocery store. You're mad at your clerk because she did not 
just call for a price check. No! You know, it's like the spinning camera above you, like the Shawshank Redemption. No! Not the price check. It's a cantaloupe. Charge your $2 and move on. You are the frustrated waiter. And then there is the anti-waiter. You don't wait. You would have walked into that store and said, no, I can eat tomorrow. And you turn around and you walk right back out. You do not wait. You've actually determined that success in life will be judged by how often you avoided waiting. That's your whole goal in life. I never want to wait. Amusement parks? No, because all you do all day is stand in line. Why would I do that, you say? You would rather take a longer route that doesn't require you to wait than the shorter one that might. Because, quote, at least I'm moving. You are the anti-waiter. Waiting is bad. Waiting is the enemy. So, what type of waiter are you? Are you chill? Are you frantic? Making all the calculus? Are you frustrated? You find yourself getting sort of angry at the world? Or are you the anti-waiter and you do everything you can not to wait? My guess is that you might be able to see yourself primarily in one of these places, but you prob- we probably all exhibit all of these at different times. Depending on the situation, sometimes you might be totally chill. Other times you find yourself getting mad. Other times you find yourself kind of trying to work out all the math of it. A lot of times it's the situation that changes, how we react. It's our sort of disposition, how we're feeling that day. I think we can all respond to waiting in some of these ways. But I think we can agree that waiting is difficult. Waiting does not seem to be something that comes naturally to us. We don't seem to like to wait And learning to wait can be a hard lesson. And yet it seems like God wants to teach us to wait. And the examples I've been using have been everyday examples, kind of mundane, the grocery store and driving. But I know that all of us have deep, bigger things that we're waiting for, sort of the, the grander things in our lives. We're waiting for some kind of healing that we've been struggling with for a long time. We're waiting for a broken relationship to be restored or a romantic relationship to begin. We wait for jobs to change. We wait for jobs to improve. We wait for results in people, and we've poured our lives into these people, and we've given to these people, and we feel like we're forever waiting for the change. So there's these big things in our lives that we wait for. So the question is actually quite important. How good are you at waiting? As we dip back into the story of Elijah, as we will do today, we're going to discover in today's passage there is a lot not happening. We're going to discover that there is some significant waiting. But I hope from this today you'll be encouraged about why you might be asked to wait and what waiting can teach us. So let's look where we left off with Elijah. We've been studying, we studied sort of the bookends of the story of Elijah, if you will remember. The story begins in 1 Kings 17.1, where Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe, that's the only introduction we have of this great prophet, he walks into the courts of Ahab, 
And he declares, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah, barely introduced, walks before Ahab, declares there will be no rain. He's setting up this epic battle between his God, the living God, and the God that Ahab has, had adopted through it because of his wife Jezebel and her influence, Baal, Baal, the God of fertility, the God of prosperity, the God of nature. So when Elijah comes in and says, we're going to have a throwdown, we're going to have a smackdown, your God versus my God, who controls the rain? Let's do this. Chapter 17 passes, no rain. Chapter 18, all the way to the very end, last couple of verses, no rain. In between the beginning of chapter 17, verse 1, and the end of chapter 18, which we studied last time, if you remember, um, Elijah sent his servant out to look across and to look for the rain, sent him seven times, till eventually he saw this little cloud like a fist in the distance. And Elijah said, there will be a great rain. But in between chapter 17, 1, and the end of 18, Three and a half years pass with no rain. And I want to particularly focus on the first year of those three and a half years, and that's the next few verses. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook as I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Now it is not clear how how much time passes between verse 1 and verse 2. So we don't know if Elijah spoke to Ahab, went right out from the court, and God said, head to Cherith, or if he lingered for a while and had to wait for God's word to come. We're not sure the timing there, but somewhere between him leaving Ahab's presence and the moment where Ahab realized that this drought thing might actually be happening. You can imagine this moment. You can imagine the advisors coming in telling Ahab, there is a drought And Ahab going, ah, do you remember that guy? He was wearing animal skins, all hairy. Do you remember him? Find him. And by the time Ahab has said that, Elijah's already run away. He's already in the hills. We know from chapter 18 that Ahab does, in fact, hunt for and look for Elijah. Ahab, uh, Elijah would have already been gone. He would have disappeared in the crags and the caves and the ridges of Cherith. Alone, devoid of almost any form of life, certainly no human life up with Elijah. It would have been a solitary existence of waiting. Even the name Cherith means cut off. Elijah is cut off. But notice that Elijah is going exactly where Elijah, I'm sorry, exactly where God wants him to go. 
Elijah was told to go to Cherith. Which I think brings us to our first principle of waiting, and that is this. God can lead us into waiting. God can bring us to a place of waiting. God told Elijah to go there, and he went there, and he waited until he was told differently. He stayed where he was at until God told him differently. What was life like for Elijah during this time at Cherith? Why would God lead anyone to that kind of place? We don't have a direct explanation here, but through the the testimony of Scripture, we see that it's not infrequent that God takes his people or someone who is is, um, going to be his spokesperson or his follower and takes them through a kind of wilderness experience, a kind of cutting off and a kind of honing of character, roughing, sort of smoothing out our rough edges, building in us a kind of strength that we could not build were we not waiting. Were we not alone and separated? It gives us a, it's a kind of crucible for our lives. This is not rocket science. I think that this is sort of understood somewhat in the human nature, even those who aren't Christians. I just spent a week, as some of you know, uh, at an AP um, English language and composition camp, which for you sounds like one of the, I know that sounds like one of the rings of hell to you, but I actually enjoyed it. I spent the week writing essays, grading essays, talking about prescriptive versus descriptive, and talking all about, well, yeah, all right. Um, But it was in Vermont, which may make it happier, a happier thought for you. No, it still doesn't make it any better. It's like, you you can think of much better things to do in Vermont? Yeah, probably. Our instructor, though, was a teacher at a boarding school in, I guess it was northern Massachusetts, southern Vermont, down in that area, right in the Green Mountains area. And he informed us and shared with us that his school doesn't have classes in March, to which all of us were like, we'd like to figure out how to pull that off. Well, at his boarding school, they spend two weeks skiing because that's what they do. Actually, his school day is 8 to 12 for classes, and then 12 to 4 is skiing, and then 4 to 7 is classes. So skiing is a bit... Uh, it's a, I don't know. Whitewater rafting was one of their sports. So uh, two of those weeks, skiing. The other two weeks are for special trips. So the freshmen go on a service trip. The sophomores have a class trip. The juniors have what's called the OB which is outbound. And they take juniors, so these would be like 16, 17-year-olds, they take them out to the wilderness area of Vermont, the mountains. In March, it's still very cold and very snowy in Vermont at this time. And they do all this wilderness training that they've done all year, and then in the midst of the 10 days, they send the kids out by themselves to live for three days. They give them, he said, a pail of food and a tarp And they're supposed to survive for three days. But what they don't give them is even more interesting. I think they give them a few other supplies, of course. But they don't give them phones, no watches, no Kindles, no books. He says, in fact, they give them a pad of paper to write on and an unsharpened pencil. (laughs) 
So part of the experience is figuring out how to sharpen a pencil in the wilderness. And of course, the idea of this is that they're supposed to spend time with themselves. You may be wondering, is that kind of dangerous? I did, there were a few people that asked that, and he said, actually, this is a little bit of a parenthesis, but um, they kind of know where the kids camp out, of course. And the kids, though, sort of at, at some place nearby, kind of up down this mountain from their campsite, will put a stick. Every kid has sort of a stick that they put out at the base of wherever they're camping, and every day they have to tie a ribbon on it. And then the leaders come around and check to make sure a ribbon has gotten tied on each day, and that indicates that the student, at least in the last 24 hours, has been, you know, conscious. So I'm going to try to put this through at, at uh, my school. I'll see, uh, <laughs> see if they'll let me do that. He tells stories, of course, though, of the students that come back from this experience. Three days of essentially waiting and being with themselves. And he talks about how this testing and this honing created a crisis in them of who they are, what they want to be, what they believe, how they've been treating other people. It's sort of this, you just have all this time in waiting, all this time in waiting for honing and for chiseling and for smoothing out. It's hard learning, right? It's wilderness learning. Waiting is wilderness learning. But it's a way of refining us. And that's because God wants to teach us something, I like, and I'm, I want to phrase it this way. There's growth in holy dependence that comes from waiting. Holy dependence. After you've waited for a while, you eventually get to the point where you realize, I might not be able to solve this on my own. And it creates a kind of dependence on God. It builds in us character I want to add something to this, sort of an implication. Do not assume, therefore, that waiting is a punishment. I think this is very helpful. If you've been waiting for something for a long time, it's easy to start thinking, God must be mad at me. That's why he's not answering this. That's why he's not taking care of this. That's why I'm still waiting. God must be mad at me. But I want you to note that there's no anger from God in this relationship with Elijah. Matter of fact, the waiting is protection from Ahab. Is it possible that your waiting is a kind of gift from God? A kind of protection, perhaps. Certainly a kind of growth and a kind of learning. So if you're waiting for something, and it's hard, and it's lengthy, don't assume that you're being punished in some kind of way. Ask God, what is the purpose, Lord, of my waiting? Additionally, waiting is a discipline honed by practice. The more you wait, the better you get at it. The more you've learned to let go of some of these things, the more things you're able to let go of. It's a kind of di- a discipline. We have, some of you have met our dog, Sophie. She's a shih tzu, which means she has no nose, right? So you're imagining one of those dogs, which some of you will argue are not real dogs. I understand that. 
Our dog is smaller than our cat, which I don't know if that says something about the dog or the cat or both. But some of you have dogs that actually have snouts. And there's a trick that some of you may be able to do with your dogs that I've seen where you can put a treat on the nose of the dog and the dog will wait to eat it. Have you seen this? Have you ever seen this? The dog, of course, is looking cross-eyed down his own snout at the bone, (laughs) drooling, waiting. And the, the master's going, wait, wait. And then there's some command, right? Go or eat or something. And the dog snaps it out of the air, off his nose. The dog has been trained to wait. That is not natural behavior, right? He's been trained to wait. Likewise, I don't know how natural waiting is for us. It's a discipline that we learn. We, too, need to be trained to wait, but it can be difficult waiting. Look how this verse ends, or these verses end. The brook dries up. Friends, this is a problem when you're living alone in Cherith. And not only did the brook dry up, but we know that Elijah, for the weeks leading up to this, maybe the months leading up to this, was watching as the brook dried up. This is a hard waiting that Elijah is a part of, a hard training. Can you imagine watching the brook drying up, waiting for a word from the Lord, waiting being to be told where to go, and hearing nothing, and then the next day the brook's a little drier and a little drier? It is a hard kind of waiting. Can you imagine? Well, my guess is that you can imagine. Because some of you are in a place or have been in a place where you've waited so long for something, you feel your resources drying up. You feel like, I cannot survive any longer. You feel your resources of patience. You feel your resources of energy. You feel these things drying up because it is a hard training. And it wasn't until the brook had totally dried up, until, it'll be the next verse, the next verse will say, and then the Lord of the Lord came. It's not until the brook dried up that the Lord is told, or that Elijah is told to go. But in the midst of this hard training, I want you to see this, in the midst of this hard training, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this dwindling brook, there were still the ravens. Twice a day, like clockwork, morning and evening came the waiting or came the ravens in the midst of the waiting. God, even in the most difficult of waiting, will provide for us. It's interesting to me that, that Elijah's in this big waiting period. He's waiting for word of the Lord to come about him moving, about the rain coming. But in the midst of every day, he had waiting. There was waiting embedded in the waiting. You see that? Waiting for the ravens to come at night. Waiting for ravens to come in the morning. Waiting for them at night waiting for them in the morning, twice a day, every day, waiting for the ravens to arrive. And we don't have, we'd love to have more detail. Hebrew writers did not give a lot of detail in places where we sort of visual kind of like cinema-minded people would like. So I don't know if we're supposed to imagine like a huge like flock of ravens darkens the sky 
and like pelts him with food. Or if it's sort of single solitary ravens that just sort of tweet on by and drop food for him. I don't know what the picture is, but either way, whether it is the swooping sound of the entire flock or the distant chirping of single birds, I can guarantee you that Elijah became attuned to the sound and the rhythm of God's providence. When he heard it, he knew God is about to provide. Elijah was attuned to the sound and the rhythm of God's everyday providence And so must we. In these long periods of difficult waiting, waiting that may be stretching and hard and refining, are you attuned to God's provision in the midst of that waiting? Can you hear the ravens? Can you see the way God cares for you each day? Can you see the grace of God dropped into your life here and there, a friendship, a conversation? Your garden actually grew. Look, I have tomatoes. Little moments where it's actually the flapping of ravens reminding you that God, even in the midst of your waiting, is still providing. Don't miss the moments of God's loving grace in the waiting. There are lessons to be learned, and I'll start closing with this. There's lessons to be learned in the little weights of life. So don't, don't miss the lessons to be learned in the grocery store line. These kinds of weights, these little weights, can be provisions from God as well. Moments where we can show God that we get it. I understand the value of waiting. Waiting can be holy moments. Those few moments in the grocery line, those few moments you're waiting over here could be a moment for a conversation, could be a moment for a kind word. These little waits can be a moment to smile at a stranger or just to simply resist the urge to hurry. So even these little moments can be practice of waiting for the larger moments. Finally, waiting helps us reflect God's own patient heart. When I was a kid, there was a Christian sing-along program called The Music Machine. So you'd have to be sort of roughly my age or somewhere around there. This is a late 70s, early 80s. I'm seeing some people nodding, so that's very exciting to me. My memory of this was the blue cassette tape. And it had like a songbook with it. It was very kind of like late 70s, early 80s, fraggle rock, psychedelic. It was a little bit that direction. And in this one, the Music Machines book of the series of songs, or a series of, of, of programs, um, the idea was kids would put something into one side of the machine and out the other side would pop something that would sing a song about one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's just work with me, it's 1980 popped out something on the other side that was saying, one of the things that popped out was a, like, person-sized snail that sang a song about patience because he's a snail and he's slow. And so he came out, and if you weren't disturbed by the fact that there was a now human-sized snail facing you, 
you might be able to listen to the song, which he sang in a super low, super slow voice. He said, have patience. It, it was a whole octave lower than this. Have patience. Have patience. Don't be in such a hurry. If you get impatient, you only start to worry. Remember, remember that God is patient too. And think of all the times when others have to wait for you. Wasn't that, wasn't that lovely? Oh, thank you. Barbie, thank you for uh, being my, my doo-wop singer in the background there. I love that song, and it's because there's a great three-point sermon in it. Patience builds character in us. Patience helps us to understand the heart of God. And patience helps us to remember that other people, the song helps us to remember that other people frequently have to wait for us. And I don't just mean they have to wait for us to be ready to go in the morning. They have to wait for us to get it sometimes. They have to wait for us to ask for forgiveness sometimes. They have to wait for us to look for a kind word sometimes. They have to wait for us to ask for, um, ask for kindness. They have to wait for, uh, people wait for you. You wait for me. There's a lot of waiting going on. And in, in, in a very real sense, that reminds us of the patient and caring heart of God. Waiting. Waiting can be a difficult task. But it's one where you are becoming more like God. It may be a hard learn. It may be a hard time. It may be a hard process. But any time you're becoming closer to God, it's worth it, and he will give you the providence to succeed through it. It reminds me, as we close, of Isaiah 40. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to those who have no might. He increases their strength. Even youths shall grow faint and weary, but, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait... Upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall not run, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that it's hard to wait. There's things, all of us, each one of us here has something in our life that we'd like to happen right now. We say, Lord, make it happen. Lord, make it happen. And you're telling us to wait. And that's hard. But Lord, we trust you. We trust that you love us. And we trust that you are honing in us a character that is more like your own. You're honing in us a patience that we can have not only with ourselves, but with, our, with, with each other. You're honing in us a character that's more like you. So I pray that in the midst of waiting, even though we may wrestle with you about it, that's okay, we'll wrestle, but in the midst of that waiting, that you would help us to see the moments of provision, that you would help us to see the ravens of grace, and that you would strengthen us as you promised in Isaiah, that you would carry us up on wings like eagles, 
that we would not grow weary and that we would not faint. We lift this prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen.